This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Looks like somebody left a book up here. How to be a grouch. Not sure if I should be insulted. Or encouraged. Before we begin, I need to ask you guys to pray for Shannon. I'm only half joking. Because I am going to change the Sunday night sermon date again. That's what I mean. Yes. Um, when I planned it for next Sunday, I forgot we were going to Dallas to visit the grandkids. So, they're more important than you. And, and uh, we are going to do our first Sunday night sermon on March 6th at 4 p.m. That is set in stone. Four p.m. March sixth. Pretty sure that's a Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we do now pray that you would speak to us, that you would unveil your truth and grow us in in full obedience in the light of Christ. Father, that the world would see see you through us. Father, we pray that you would do that for us this morning through your word. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen. Webster's defines a resume as an abbreviated account of one's career and qualifications. For example, see if you can figure out who this resume belongs to. Summary. An exceptionally organized and diligent person with 20 plus years of hands-on experience in a wide range of subjects. Professional history. From 1995 to 2003, leader of a small gang. Included organizing, coordinating, and facilitating multiple excursions, including joint excursions with neighboring gangs, maintaining peace both within my gang and with other gangs. 2003 to 2010, teacher. Included math, English, science, art, and PE, specializing in Bible history. 2011 to 2016, professional driver. Averaged about 500 miles a day, including new hire training, no collisions or infractions. 2017 to present, personal and professional development coach. Included preparation for higher education, job job training approach and acquisition, pre and post marital counseling and financial advisor. Educational history, BS in business management, skills. Well-versed in Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, 
capable of performing minor medical procedures up to and including light surgery and accounting, hobbies, alone time. And he guesses to who that resume might belong to. Yes, that is true, and more generally, obviously, if you're paying attention, that's the resume of a wife and mother. This morning, Peter is going to give us a different kind of resume. If you remember, the purpose of 2 Peter is, is Peter wants us to be able to stand fast, to be firm and unshakable in our faith. And he did that in the first part of his letter by encouraging us to believe in the great promises of God, the very precious promises of God that give us the power to grow in godliness. However, in this second section of the letter, if you'll remember from last week, he has changed his approach. In this section of his letter, he's warning us against false teachers who would corrupt both the message and the hearers of their gospel. Last week, he did that by explaining our need to be on guard for false teachers. He explained that we needed to be on guard because they will come from within they will lead others astray, and, and ultimately, and most importantly, because they and their hearers will be destroyed. Well, thanks, Peter. Now I'm paranoid. Which is why this week, Peter's going to explain how to spot those false teachers. And he's going to do it with very harsh language. And we need to take that harsh language as a clue to how important this is. So I've titled this sermon, The Resume of False Teachers, because Peter is going to describe to us what false teachers look like. We're in 2 Peter, picking back up in chapter 2. And just so you can see the structure of how Peter does this this morning, you'll notice in the second half of verse 10, following through to verse 14, Peter's going to Tell us who false teachers are. And he's going to conclude with a case study of a guy named Balaam in verses 15 and 16. And then secondly, in verses 17 through 20, he's going to describe to us what they teach, concluding with a, a case study of dogs and pigs. So let's pick up in the second half of verse 10. This is that first section of the false teacher's resume, that's defining who they are, and he begins with what they say. In the second half of verse 10, Paul begins with what they say. Peter, excuse me. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. What I want you to notice is that three times in three verses, Peter describes what false teachers say as blasphemy. But he said it in a weird way, didn't he? He said these false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones, 
while angels won't dare blaspheme them. Therefore, like irrational animals, these false teachers are born to be destroyed because they blaspheme about things which they are ignorant, he says. What does that mean? I mean, blaspheming, that's understandable for false teachers. We can understand blaspheming. But what are they arrogant about? What are they ignorant about? And, and, and who are the glorious ones? Let's, let's knock that one out first, the glorious ones, because that's relatively simple. Who are they? Well, well putting it simply, see, Peter is talking about evil spirits like Satan and demons. They're those fallen angels who are still nonetheless glorious. How do I know this? Well, because scholars believe that Jude built his letter on Peter's, but with some added detail. And so speaking of false teachers, in, in verse 8 and 9, Jude, and you can just listen, you don't have to turn there. Jude says this. He says, yet, he's speaking of false teachers, he says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the glorious ones are the evil spirits or Satan, you might say. But how are these false teachers blaspheming? Well, Peter tells us that their blaspheme is bold and willful and ignorant. In other words, it's arrogant ignorance. It's a very dangerous combination. Look again at the second half of verse 10. Peter says, bold and willfully, they do not tremble. Meaning their arrogance is that they should tremble if they knew what they were talking about. And then look again at verse 12. He says, they blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. So again, what is their arrogantly ignorant blasphemy? They ignorantly think that they can blaspheme or judge or condemn evil spirits. And Peter says that ignorance will actually be their destruction. We see this all the time. False teachers tend to be obsessed with evil spirits. They're constantly talking about the, the realm of, of, of demons and how you need to talk against them and fight against them and speak against them. But Peter says they're like irrational animals. It's like they're a lion who thinks they can kill a man. So, so they do not tremble when they ignorantly attack something who could easily destroy them. I'll give you an illustration. There's a false teacher named Todd White. A well-known false teacher. And I want to quote from you what he says. God is in control. The Bible doesn't teach that. We think that Satan needs God's permission to attack us. He doesn't need permission. He's a jerk. I think Job might disagree with that, but did God need to give him that authority or did Satan already have it? The point is, is that White is ignorant to the fact 
that the only reason evil spirits haven't destroyed him is because God hasn't allowed it. Yet he talks against them over and over and over again and explains why you need to be prepared to, to know how to speak against evil spirits. To put it bluntly like Peter, I'll, I'll take a note from Peter's language here, rather than listening to some roided out lunatic, look at what scripture says. For example, in chapter 19 of Acts, there's a story about some greedy Jewish exorcists who hear about all that God is doing and all the miraculous things he's doing, and they think, man, people are really eating this up. We, we need to get in on that. So they go up to this person who's, who's got an evil spirit in them, and they say, we adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. And the, de the, the demon inside this person looks back, and they're like, Jesus we know, Paul we know, who are you? And then it says that the evil spirits jumped on them and beat them so that they left the house wounded and naked. <clears throat> now, here's the point. If when the fight started, you were wearing pants. And when the fight ended, you were not wearing pants. You lost. <laughs> There's not a different way to say that. There's not like, well, I got in a couple good blows. No. If you, let the, if you left the fight without your pants, you got worked. But that's the arrogant ignorance of what these false teachers say. They blaspheme spirits who could literally beat the pants off of them, as if they had the authority to say anything about it. And Peter says they will be destroyed by their own destruction, meaning they will be destroyed by the same evil they blaspheme. That's the first part about who false teachers are. It's what they say. They arrogantly, ignorantly claim to have more authority than they actually do. But look at the next line of who false teachers are in the, in the first half of verse 14. This one describes what they see. First one is what they say. This one is what they see. He says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Now, this one's not complicated. The plain fact is that false teachers are unfortunately renowned for, for sexual problems. But in the broader sense, in many different ways, false teachers reduce women to objects that must obey. Things to be controlled, objects to be used for their pleasure. And, and Peter is saying to be wary of this. The question Peter might suggest we ask is, is what do the teachers you listen to revel in? Because look at verse 13 again. Not only what do they say, but what do the teachers you listen to revel in? They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Re reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Give you an example. The Mormon church urges you to listen to Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Yet for dozens of years at least, they have spent millions of dollars trying to scrub away how many times both of those men were accused of rape from the historical record. Peter says that these things will become visible in the daytime. They'll become visible in your conversations at dinner. The point is, does a teacher's life stack up to what they teach? 
Does what they say match what they are, who they act like when you're with them on a day-to-day -day basis? First, what they say, and second, by what they see. And the last line in this section describing who false teachers are is what they seek. Look at the second half of verse 14. He says, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Plain and simple, Peter says that false teachers seek wealth. It's one of the giveaways. He says, in fact, their hearts are trained in it. That word for trained is gymnazo. It's that word that literally comes from the word naked in Greek. It's that physical training, that rigorous training that Greeks would do naked. So, so what he's saying is like a skilled athlete who spends hours each day training their body. These false teachers are practiced in greed. But how exactly are these false teachers seeking money? Well, the case study of, uh, that Peter uses of Baal, it gives us a window into the answer to that question, how they actually seek money. Look at verse 15. He says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So what he's talking about in Numbers 22, you can, you can read the whole story of Balaam if you like, but Balaam was a prophet or a, a seer for the nation of Israel. And, and the nation of Israel was camped out right by the Jordan preparing to invade Moab. And the, the king of Moab had already seen what they had done to the Amorites, and he was terrified of what this army was going to do to him, and so he came up with a plan. He approached Balaam, this, this prophet or this seer, and offered him excessive wealth. He offered him his house, the, 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 the full of his house in money. I'll fill my house with gold and silver, and that's what I'll give you, to prophesy against Israel. And Balaam's greed being too much, he eventually agreed. In other words, what these false teachers are skilled at, what they're trained in, what they're practicing, is, is using the gospel to build their own wealth. We see that all the time. It's kind of a cliche. There's an evangelist named Justin Peters. He was born with cerebral palsy. And he tells the story about how his father first became interested in religion. He says that when he was 16, a neighbor came to his father and said, Hey, if you have enough faith, your son, God will heal your son. And at age 16, of course, his father and he were willing to do just anything for that. So this neighbor told his father about a faith healer named Nora Lamb who was coming to town. So they went desperate for any help. And as Miss Lamb was doing her healing, she saw Justin and his father approaching the, the, the line where she was going to be doing this healing. And the way Justin describes it is he says she saw him with his crutches and his deformed legs and instantly knew it was time to leave. And so she started to walk out, but, her, but his father, not taking no for an answer, ran up, stood in front of her and stopped her and said, please, I need you to heal my son. He says needing, her needing to do something in front of the crowd because the crowd had seen what had happened. What this Miss Lamb said was, Mr. Peters, what's your financial situation? And his father said, what does that have to do with anything? 
And she responded, and I quote, The more money you give to the Lord's work, the more likely it is that he will answer your prayers, and I don't think you have the resources to heal your son. They use the gospel for their own wealth. This is who false teachers are. This is what they say, what they see, and what they seek. They say blasphemous things about evil spirits. Their eyes are full of adultery. And their hearts are trained and practiced in using the gospel to develop their own wealth. But just so you know where Peter's coming from, just so you know why Peter takes these elements of the false teacher and presents them to us, let me juxtapose for you these false teachers with someone else. Rather than arrogant ignorance, in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Rather than objectifying and and using women in John chapter 8, Jesus defended a woman who had been caught in adultery from an unfair execution. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus healed many, many women. And in John chapter 20, the first person that Jesus chose to reveal himself to after the resurrection was a woman named Mary Magdalene. And rather than a heart trained in greed, in Matthew chapter 8, a scribe asked Jesus if he could follow him. And Jesus told him, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Jesus preached from borrowed boats. He multiplied borrowed food, he rode a borrowed donkey, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The point that Peter is making is that these false teachers are the antithesis of our Savior. Our Savior was literally humility incarnate, not an arrogant blasphemer. He cherished and loved those who were weaker and outcast in the society. He didn't prey on them for his own pleasure. And he literally served us to death, asking for nothing in return, much less money. That's the first section of a false teacher's resume, who they are. They are opposite of our Savior. But Peter tells us that there's another way we can detect these false teachers. I want you to look at the second section of their resume, which details what they teach. In 17 and 18, look how Peter calls them waterless mists. He says, these are waterless waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, what Peter is saying is that preachers should be soaking their hearers, soaking their hearers with sheets of living water. They should be offering the, the, the satiating good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has paid for your sin by taking it all on himself. They should be dousing their hearers with the fact that Jesus conquered the grave 
and the refreshing call that all you need to do is believe in this, and he'll share it with you. But Peter says that these false teachers are like waterless mists, which we in New Mexico are all too familiar with. They're like a cloud that never rains. These false teachers continually lower their bucket into the wellspring of their own self-indulged fantasy and pour out nothing but the dry, gritty sand of useless works and self-righteousness. When I was in the sixth grade, I was at a summer camp. And late one night, the counselors came and woke us up for this surprise hike, moonlight hike to a, this overlook. And it all sounded good, except for they didn't tell us that this was like a five to six mile hike up a mountain. And the person leading the hike was some Iron Man freak show. <laughs> so none of us brought water or anything. By the time we get to the top of this mountain, we're all dying of thirst. And the counselors say, luckily, they, hey, we brought you some snacks. Thank God. But as we're rummaging through the supplies that they had brought, we realized they had brought bags full of Skittles and salted peanuts. Like the perfect combination to suck every last vestige of moisture out of your mouth. These false teachers are like salted peanuts to hikers searching for living water. They dip their buckets into their wells and offer gallons of, of obligation and works to people who are already dying of thirst from striving. And to make matters worse, look again how they do this in the second half of verse 18. He says, They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So, Peter's separating two groups here. You have some people who just don't care at all about the gospel. They're, they're against God and everything. Th those are the people who live in error. But then you also have these people who are trying to escape that error. They've recognized something about their own sin, something about themselves that needs help. People who have recognized that they're thirsty, but they don't know what to do. And Peter says these false teachers, like a cloud armed with proud boasts, of success. They entice these people by promising them the satisfaction they're searching for. But these false teachers play on their hearers' arrogance, or excuse me, their ignorance, and they entice them with the passions of the flesh, exactly what they need to be escaping. Think of it this way. See if this sounds familiar. Playing on their desire for refreshment these false teachers promise to satiate their passions for health and wealth and prosperity instead of forgiveness for their sins. They promise their best life today instead of hope for tomorrow. They dump bucket after bucket of dry works and salty promises on thirsty people. And because of this, Look what Peter says they actually offer those thirsty people in verse 19. He says they promise them freedom, but they themselves are as slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
For if they have escaped the defilements, for after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. In other words, he's saying these false teachers' message of freedom, it can barely be heard over the clanging of the chains dragging behind them. Now, I know it's a little confusing to try to break apart those sentences there that we just read, but it's very important to understand the details. It's very important to break apart that sentence because of what Peter is describing there, not only because there's a kernel of truth in it, but because the distortion that he's describing is alive and well today. The truth is this. We have been called to freedom. That call is loud and clear in the gospel. We have been called to freedom. We have been set free from the curse of the law, which is death. However, the Bible also makes clear that that freedom is not a license to continue in sin. Paul says this explicitly in Romans chapter 6. He says, are we to continue sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, he says. But look, that's exactly what these false teachers are saying. They're promising freedom while they entangle their hearers in defilement. In other words, what they're saying is that because you believe in Jesus, you can live however you want. Jesus is like a a cosmic genie passing out get out of jail free cards. Today it sounds like, do you want to be rich, successful, powerful, happy, content? God will do that for you. And no, it, it doesn't matter that that's the opposite of Jesus. God wants to satisfy every desire you have. That's what it sounds like today. It sounds like you can go to church on Christmas and Easter and God will forgive you for the rest of your life. It sounds like you can say a prayer when you're 18 and then live a life dedicated to sin, but that prayer will save you. Sound familiar? That promise of freedom and then entanglement in defilements of the flesh basically defines a majority of the American church. But what Peter says they're really offering is slavery. Look again at verse 19. He says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. In other words, while they proclaim freedom, these false teachers are actually giving their hearers detailed instructions on how to tighten their shackles. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, we have been set free. We have been released from the guilt of shame and doubt by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we have been freed from is sin. We have been unchained from our desire to follow the passions of our flesh. We've been set free to live for Christ. And the heart, that that desire, that directive will be obvious in a godly teacher. 
The gospel says that Christ took away not only your sin, but your desire for it. Now, that doesn't mean we cease from sin. It just means we're no longer enslaved by it. We're no longer chained to it. Now, not only do we want nothing to do with sin, but we find joy in walking away from it and following Christ. Not blending the two together. The way Peter puts it in this final case study in verse 22 is as shocking as it is true. He says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to to wallow in the mire. Think of it this way. What Peter is saying is we have been freed from our vomit and mire. But false teachers go back to it like a dog and a pig. Peter wants you and I to be saturated with the gospel of freedom. Like camels walking through the the dry wilderness of this, this life. Well versed in the gospel of freedom and sin, freedom from sin in Jesus, and ready to identify false teachers who would render that living water stagnant and putrid. So, as is right and true. And good for edification in a sermon, talking about freedom in Christ and and quenching thirst. I want to close with a beer commercial. (laughs) Dosa Keys is a commercial series about the most interesting man in the world. The series includes this distinguished looking guy, he goes on all these fun adventures, but it always ends the same way with him sitting at some table. He gives you that welcoming look and he says, stay thirsty, my friends. My charge to you this morning is the same. Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty, my friends, for teachers who speak of the enduring sovereign power of God. For teachers who seek to build up the weak and the outcast through the power of the gospel. And who seek the treasure of eternal life with Christ. Stay thirsty for the living water of freedom from sin that's found in Christ alone. And stay thirsty for preaching that shows you not only how but why you want to leave the chains of sin behind. Stay thirsty, my friends. Thirsty for the death-quenching living water of Jesus Christ who died and rose again to submerge you in the living water of eternal life with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the gift that You have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
thank you, Lord, for how you have allowed us and given us what we need to understand him and what he's done for us. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us thirst so that we can understand what it means to spiritually thirst. I pray, Lord, that you would grow in us a thirst for Christ that cannot be quenched by anything except for the pure, unadulterated gospel of forgiveness and grace and life in Him. Father, I pray that you would display to the world how we have been satisfied by that water. I pray that they would see how quenched our thirst is and that they too would want some of that water. Father, you have done this for us through the work of our Savior on the cross. The good news that he died for our sins and rose again to defeat death that we couldn't defeat. And so it is in his name that I pray these things.